Well, good morning and welcome to Stevenson High Kirk here in North Ayrshire. Well, this is the first of our summer pre-recorded devotions, and so you'll get a rest from my voice. Well, I'm just delighted that one of our members, Reverend Alan Ford, will be sharing in these morning devotions. Well, Alan will also be sharing at the High Kirk this morning for our morning service at 10.30. If you'd like to join us, then please pre-book a space. Information for booking will appear at the end of this video, or why not visit our website at stevensonhighkirk.com. Well, we now worship together. The psalmist declares, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, let's worship the Lord together as we sing in our opening hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say.
Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we remember that your Son Jesus said to his disciples, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And we thank you for that peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, that peace that passes all understanding, that peace in the midst of the storms of life, that is part of our birthright of those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And so, for that peace that we receive from the Prince of Peace, we give you thanks and praise in his precious name. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Well, this morning our reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, there at verse 1 through to verse 20. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zaphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zaph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year, Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, 
May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Amen. And may the Lord bless us the reading of his precious word. Over these three Sundays we will be studying three incidents in the book of First Samuel. The first of chapters are really spent introducing Samuel, thought by many to be the greatest Old Testament figure after Moses. Samuel was unique in ancient Israel because he had three distinct roles as leader. He was born into a Levitical or priestly family, so he served as a priest of Israel. He was recognised as the last of Israel's judges and handled judicial decisions and disputes. And he was also the first of a series of great prophets after the time of Moses. His parents lived in a village about five miles north of Jerusalem. But the place where people went to worship in those days was a place called Shiloh, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem and close to modern Nablus. This was a time when people still worshipped in the tabernacle and before the temple was built in Jerusalem. The law required the Israelites to attend three annual pilgrim festivals in Jerusalem, but at this time the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle was in Shiloh, so people went and worshipped there. There were three major priests at Shiloh, a father and two sons. They officiated at the sacrifices presented at the tabernacle. Their names are interesting. Eli means God is high. Well, that sounds quite good. But Hophni translates as tadpole. And Phineas comes from an Egyptian word meaning the black one. Somehow Ruri in the Gaelic meaning red, does not have the same overtones as the black one. But as we will see as we go through the book, he was a man who was black at heart as well. The passage introduces us to what may seem to us at first a strange menage a trois of Elkanah, the man, and his two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Polygamy was an accepted social custom throughout the ancient Middle East. It was also a common practice among the ancient Israelites. Although it may seem that polygamy deviated from God's original plan for marriage as illustrated in Genesis, the practice was permitted under God's law, particularly in cases of a childless first marriage or a levirate marriage. A levirate marriage is where a man died without children and his widow would become the wife of her dead husband's brother so that she would have children for her late husband. I think that one would look at one's future brother-in-law very closely in that situation, but I've always thought that a major problem with polygamy must have been to have, shall we say, several mothers-in-law. Just to be clear, polygamy 
meant a man having several wives. Adultery occurred when a man had a relationship with someone else's wife. King David, for example, had at least eight wives. But as far as we know, you only committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In ancient Israel, failure to have children was regarded as a family tragedy for several reasons. In an agricultural culture, children were needed to help with the work of everyday life. Without sons, the family name would not be preserved, and without an heir, the family would be unable to maintain its place in the tribal allotments of land. Finally, a woman without children would never be the mother and ancestor of the promised Messiah. Elkanah most likely took her second wife Peninnah for a reason that was legitimate in the ancient world. His first wife appeared to be barren. At that time, the blame for not having children was always assigned to the women, and barrenness was often the cause of divorce. Even though polygamy was an accepted custom, God's law warned rulers against marrying many women. And furthermore, the scriptures record the tragic results of polygamy, turbulent and divided families. Now this menage a trois was clearly not a happy one, for the wife with children took every opportunity to flaunt her children before Hannah. Perhaps she did so because, in fact, she felt inferior, because Hannah was Elkanah's first love. And clearly, as Elkanah gave her the double portion, Hannah was being shown by Elkanah that he loved her more than the one who had given her him children. Life and relationships are always complicated, but this three-way relationship seems to have been more complicated than most. Now, Jewish religion required that the men present themselves before God on these three festive occasions. Sometimes the families went as well, but Hannah Gong shows her own devotion to the Lord in that she also made the annual treks to Shiloh. We read that she wept and did not eat, the classic symptoms of a troubled heart. And undoubtedly, Peninnah's constant taunting drove Hannah into a deep depression. I suspect that no one but a woman in a childless marriage, where children are truly wanted, can fully understand the emotions of Hannah, or indeed of her husband Elkanah. Often couples, even today, who go through the gradual process of realising that they are not going to have children, become closer as they face the reality and sadness. I remember an aunt and uncle of mine who didn't have children, and there was a special closeness about them. It was the same with Elkanah and Hannah. Trying to express his love for Hannah, he puts it very simply, his love for Hannah is a greater blessing than having ten sons, and he asks her to confirm that those feelings are reciprocated and that he is worth more than ten sons to her. See, it's not just Hannah who needs reassurance, it's also Elkanah who needs reassurance that he's loved as well. These are not just empty words of comfort, they are the simple truth. If it had been otherwise, Hannah 
would have been cast aside in the favour of a woman who could bear children. The pilgrimage and festivals culminated in feast at which there was much to eat and drink. These often would be large gatherings of families and perhaps with all the children running around Hannah felt it even more at such a gathering. Maybe she had to contend with people asking her if there were no children yet and perhaps also she was effectively excluded from the conversation of those who spoke about their children. Hannah went to pray and her prayer was not some routine prayer, a set formula of words. Her prayer was her heart outpouring all the hurt and all the sorrow to the only one who truly understood. God himself who understands the hearts of each of us better than we know ourselves. As she prayed her lips moved but no sound came out. Her prayers were between her and God and not for the ears of a casual eavesdropper who may have been beside her in worship and who would never understand. In her desperation to be a mother she tries to make a pact with God. If we will let her have a son then she will make sure he grows up as God's servant. She's so desperate that she is saying that if she can only be a mother and have him for a while and then she will give him into God's service for life. She promised that if God would give her a son the child would be given back to God. Levites customarily serve from age 25 to age 50. Yet Hannah dedicated her son for lifelong service. The Bible speaks of only one other Nazarite for life, the judge Samson. Words no razor shall come upon his head refer to the law or the rules of the Nazarite. Nazarite vow involved a designated period of time, usually no more than a few weeks or months, during which there was a commitment to refrain completely from wine, from cutting the hair and touching any dead body. Hannah promised that her son would be a Nazarite for life. To put it simply, she promised that her son would be holy, that is, dedicated completely to God. Old Eli the priest was unable to figure out what she was saying to God as he watched her lips. As you may know, I'm a, a lip reader, but sometimes it's impossible to read a person's lips because the lip movements don't follow the expected pattern. This is true when someone is overcome with sorrow and grief. Sometimes even hearing people have difficulty understanding people who are distressed. But the face can change so much in sorrow that the facial movements can sometimes become very strange. Perhaps it was this and the length of time that Hannah remained in prayer that made Eli think at first that Hannah had had uh, too little of the eating and too much of the drinking. Eli thinks he's dealing with a woman with what we would call an alcohol problem. She's quick to dispel Eli's notion. She's not been drinking at all. It's not beer that has been poured out of it out of her soul, rather, that had been poured out before 
a lord in distress. She says, don't mistake me for a wicked woman. Undoubtedly at feasts there would be some women who under drink would show their true character, literally worthless women. But Hannah is saying, I'm not like them. I'm better than that. I love God. And I'm praying and pouring my heart out to him in my distress. Eli immediately realised that rather than dealing with a drunk, worthless woman, that he is instead dealing with a very precious soul, tells her that God will answer her prayer. He doesn't ask what it is. He simply knows in his heart that God could not disappoint this woman. He also tells her to go in peace. She's to depart with a different state of mind from that with which she came to the place of prayer. And arises from the place of prayer with a peace and with a change of mind and heart. She starts eating again. Her face no longer displays the signs of mourning and sadness. She experienced God's peace as she awaited the answer to her prayer. She got on with life. She went back home with her husband. And very soon she knew the stirrings of a baby inside her. But when the child was born, she didn't forget the part that God had played and called the child Samuel, which means name of God. When she got what she wanted, she didn't forget her vow to God, even though it was going to be hard to fulfill and keep. She remembered her part in the covenant she had made with God. I remember being on a plane when it developed what is politely known as technical problems, engine failure, and the plane having to swiftly return to the airport. A woman aboard, possibly after a few gins, was crying and promising she would go to Mass every Sunday if only we landed safely. I suspect that she very quickly forgot her promise, but Hannah remembered her promise to God. The birth of Hannah's son is part of a long history of godly women and men praying for a child as God's gift, and that whether they are blessed with children or blessed with a very special relationship, or even with neither of these things, that they're still blessed by God, and he is in control. Peace, real peace, comes when we pour out our hearts to him, and then leave it to him. No. Mm -hmm.
unite our hearts in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, we trust in your loving care for all and therefore we bring you our prayers for others. We pray for our world, for those who rebuild where things have been destroyed, for those who fight hunger, poverty and disease, for those who have power to bring change for the better and to renew hope. We pray for our country, for our Queen, our First Minister, for those who frame our laws and shape our common life, for those who keep the peace and administer justice, and for all who serve the community. We pray for people in need, those for whom life is a bitter struggle, those whose lives are clouded by death or loss, by pain or disability, by discouragement or fear, by shame or rejection. We pray for those in the circle of friendship and love around us, children and parents, sisters and brothers, friends and neighbours, and for those especially in our thoughts today. We pray for the church and its stand with the poor, in its love for the outcast and stranger, in the service to the sick and the neglected, in its proclamation of the gospel of Christ. 
in its prayer for a true heaven-sent revival. Eternal God, we give thanks to you for the great community of faith into which you have brought us, for those who have honoured the scriptures, gathered our songs, built our sanctuaries, and taught us to know and trust you. Therefore, grant us grace in our day to live as faithfully as they did, and give us a deep desire to serve our risen Saviour, living to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
And now let us go in the strength of the Lord and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit be with us and remain with us now and always. Amen.